So I think I have three, three main goals with you this morning. One is to deal with Thomas. Uh, one is to deal with that Ephesians text and really hopefully convince you that like all the epistles this year that we've been listening to, like this is your meat. This is where you got to dig in if you want to feel like you're in control of your life, not by taking control of your life, but by having a God who is. I've been telling you, pray the Psalms because they'll make the promises part of your daily vocabulary. That's the idea. But to understand those promises, that's where the epistles in the New Testament really become, again, your meat, your daily bread. So we got to look at that Ephesians text tightly. Um, but I want to do something else first. And I, I, I don't know how good this is really or not, uh, how honest this is. I, I think it's pretty honest. But like, it's weird for me to do this. But I don't think it is. Like, I think it's one of the most important things we can do this year. 2020 is a myth. It's a complete made up idea. In about three weeks, there's going to be a bunch of hoopla about how it's over and how the next day will be 2021. And you're going to see people on Facebook and Twitter and wherever posting about, oh, thank goodness, 2020 is over. Maybe 2021 will be better. As if somehow the stars and the sun and the moon are going to change. They're not. And you might think, well, Pastor Fisk, but 2020 is about how long it's been since Jesus was here. This is the Christian calendar. I hate to break it to you, but no, it's not on several levels. First off, it's the Roman calendar initially, and now it has become the American business calendar. So it's really the financial, the mammon calendar at the end of the day. And then 200, or excuse me, 2,020 years since when? Now, it did used to say in your textbooks, Anno Domini, or A.D., not after death, Anno Domini, year of the Lord, because it was believed for a long time this was how many years since the Lord Jesus was born. But we know now that's, in fact, a mistake from sometime in the Middle Ages. And here's kind of the rift on that one. King Herod the Great, the guy who killed all the babies to try to kill Jesus, his reign ended sometime in 4 B.C., that means Jesus had to flee to Egypt before 4 BC. So we're looking at like the flip over to 2024, 2025, or 2026, and we're not really sure. And that's, again, if you're following the business calendar, if you're following the church calendar, we just had the flip over seven days ago. So that 2020 is a myth on every single level. And what's not a myth is that he has risen. You know this yet? You are paid for. You are immortal now, and he won't be long anyway. Since I put that in my daily thinking about the year, by the way, this last week, I've had such a great week. Everyone else is still stuck in 2020. I, you, you're not either now. You don't have to be. Don't assume it's going to get better. It might be worse. I mean, God has promised a lot of rough things. I read a terrifying book this week called Pendulum. Ask me about it sometime. It says that things are going to get bad from here until three years from now, after which it'll get better for about three years, but still be really bad. And then there'll be like the best time in the last 80 years. This is based on sociological historical study of the last 3,000 years of history. I don't know. Could all be gobbledygook. I don't know. It's been a weird year. But what I know is what they talk about in this book, which is that we're at the peak of a coming together in history which will go the other direction and be about individualism in 80 years. But right now we're in a coming together. 
And you can kind of see this because the lines are getting drawn so clear everywhere. And even amongst your friends, you find you don't have friends that you used to have because of ideas that you have. That's because we're on the trajectory toward a we, toward a unifying. And the Lord has used this, by the way, to unify you with himself and with Christianity this year, to draw you for the last 40 years, honestly, closer and closer to being here right now. Where the world is saying, we're going to close Christmas, in a couple places at least. And where you're going to say, no, we're not. Because it does matter what history has happening around us. And regardless of what the next three three years actually bring, we here at St. Paul need to stand together, not on what the world tells us to think is true, but what the Bible actually says. On every single level, across the board. And I said it in the announcements. I'm going to say it more and more. Do you want to know where we need to draw this fighting line most? It's in the distinction between man and woman, but not the way that the arguments out there would have you do it. It has everything to do with the father being the head of the house and a good one at that. God made so. And if you try to remove it, you destroy the world. Those are about the most un-American words I can imagine uttering these days. And yet we still have things like founding fathers, don't we? Where'd that idea come from and where'd it go? In any case, I want to break the myth and I want to give you what's actually true. So then into this, let's look at what happened on the day of resurrection. Jesus comes out of the tomb. He does some crazy stuff. He shows up to Peter. He shows up to Mary. He ends up miles away with two other disciples, Cleopas and another guy. They end up beating him back to tell everybody else they've seen him risen. And they're told, well, Peter saw him risen too. That all happens that first night. And then Thomas shows up later, right? That's the story we hear today. Thomas shows up later. Now, Thomas gets a bad rap because of this story on two levels. One, we call him Doubting Thomas. He's not doubting. He's unbelieving. But two, we forget who he was before this. Thomas was like your man's man, apostle. Do you remember when Jesus delays to go visit Lazarus and Lazarus dies? Remember that? And then how he goes and he raises Lazarus. He's like, this all happened so you can know who I am. When that happens and they're going, there are others saying, don't go to Jerusalem. You're going to die. They're going to kill you if you get there, Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm going to go anyway. And he goes. At that moment, Thomas says, one of the few things he says in the Bible, he says, let us go with him that we may die with him. Now, it's a really fascinating thing to say, isn't it? He has so much faith and yet none at the same time. He knows exactly who Jesus is. He will follow him to the grave and yet he doesn't even know why Jesus is here. And yet after all of this has taken place, after he has seen his Lord crucified, after he has seen whatever hopes he had completely dashed on the ground, and he hears the message from his friends whom he has lived with and breathed with and eaten with and traveled with for three years under this same Lord, when they say to him, he's risen and that was the point and it's going to work out, he says, no, I won't, I won't, I won't. And that's why Doubting Thomas is just a bad name. This is obstinate, unbelieving, doesn't want the good news, tired of having my hopes disappointed, Job on the ash heap, Thomas. And like Gideon in the older reading, right, who had no business saying to God, do this to the fleas once, let alone twice. Thomas has no business not letting the anointed apostles of God tell him the gospel. But why is it written? Why did it happen? Because the point of the gospel is that God doesn't let you say no. He comes and he pounds you in the face with it. He will not stop assaulting you. 
with the truth that he is good and that all your problems are basically you, but that he has a full-on plan to make you not your problem anymore. And the first step is just believing you're not your problem anymore because Jesus has fixed it. And as radical as that seems, as impotent as that would seem, it's just an idea, isn't it? No, it's not. It's the living spirit of the holy God regenerating creation in your breast first before the rest of it. Now, Thomas knows this when he sees it happen. My Lord and my God. That's a long way from I won't believe. And then Jesus wants us to not miss the point. Thomas, did you believe because I showed up? Is it because you demanded it and I met your signs? Is that what it was? No. No. Blessed is the one who does not see and yet believes. Which means Thomas didn't believe because he saw. If you look back at the text, listen to Jesus' words. What does he say? Peace be with you. Put your finger here. Put your hand here. Stop doubting. Stop unbelieving. Stop resisting and believe. It's the moment he says that to Thomas that Thomas believes. Because Thomas couldn't do it before Jesus told him to do it. Just like Peter walking on water. He couldn't do it until Jesus told him to do it. Then he could do it. Then he took his eyes off Jesus. He couldn't do it anymore. Welcome to your life, Christian. That's it. Back and forth, back and forth you go. Which is why doubting Thomas doesn't help because your doubts aren't the problem. It's your unbelief. Your unbelief comes as a temptation to you. You call it a doubt. We should call it as a temptation and a lie. Know enough scripture to call it out for what it is. Pray that the Lord would change your heart on the matter and walk forward with what's right. But of course, that's a hard work. And it's hard to sell tickets to a guy telling you that, right? Like it doesn't sell. But what we've learned is that trying to make Christianity sell doesn't sell either. So all I got left is to tell you what we believe. And frankly, I think it's better anyway. Jesus, uh, Thomas believes we're going to leave him here. Before I do, though, one more thing about this guy. There is an ancient, historic, 2,000-plus-year-old institutional church called Mar Thoma. They are in India. They are not the only Christians in India, nor are they what I would consider fully Orthodox and Bible-believing. However, they're called Mar Toma because they were planted by Thomas, or so the story goes. So history would tell us, and really, frankly, you should take the Dan Carlin approach to history, which is that even if it isn't true, you need to believe that it is when it comes to things like the traditions of the saints. Like we, not, we can't prove Thomas did this, but you need to believe he did. It's pretty evident there's Christians there. How'd they get there? Thomas went there, and then he was murdered there. He died there for the faith. He did die with Jesus like he said he was going to, only not as one a cynic without hope, as one confident where he was going when he died. In this then, let's look at a little of Ephesians chapter 4 here this morning as our meat, right, our real focus point. And we're going to go, even though the text starts at verse 7, we're going to go through the whole chapter, not to the end, but we're going to start at the front. So Ephesians chapter 4. Where chapter one, or some chapter four, verse one, Paul says this. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you who were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, 
one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. But, now here's our text, right? To each was given grace. I'm reading from two different, at the same time, two different translations, uh, ESV. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, it says. And then there's this tangent section. We'll come back to that. But we're going to, what goes on after that, he comes back to the point about the gifts are the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists. Again, we touched on that earlier. I'm going to come back and reaffirm that. But before that, I want to start with what I just read. So this section in which Paul's leading into the gift giving is pretty important. Notice what he says right away. Where is he? I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. He's in jail is where he is. He is unable to walk about freely. He has had his rights stripped of him because he is a Christian. And again, the history in the book of Acts on this is, is pretty huge. Let's just leave it at that. He's writing from not freedom. I, in jail for being a Christian, write to you to what? Well, NKG, NKJV says to beseech you to walk, to beseech you, to beg you, to implore you, to call on you, to say, please, friends, walk worthy of the calling to which you were called. Now, what does it mean to walk worthy of the calling of a Christian? That's an important question. He's going to talk about that a bit in what comes next. But I want to stop you before you go too far. The worthiness of a Christian is not the ability to be proud of how you look, act, feel, or do. That is not the worthiness he is referring to here. If it is anything, it is the worthiness of knowing that no matter how good you get, you're not worthy. No matter how much you've done, you deserve to be sent to hell anyway. That Christ is sufficient and you are in him, but without him, you are nothing. You are dust, you are a worm, and less. If you can know that, then to walk worthily of what you're called is simply to believe that Christ has you. And then you will, in Christ, find these things it describes next. Lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with each other. All of those words in English have a very softened feel. I'll take gentleness as an example. Gentleness sounds like a soft word. It does not sound like we talked earlier about man and woman and how we need to understand the distinction. Gentleness is not like a, a man's man kind of word, right? It's usually a little more of what you'd expect from, from the ladies. But that's an English problem. That's not a Greek thing. The gentleness which it's talking about here, this word, if you dig into it, it means you have to have strength first. It's the kind of word in which there is strength that could destroy, but it doesn't. So it's closer to self-control than anything else. It's a powerful idea. Patience is another one here. It said steadfastness a moment ago or long-suffering. Patience, a girl's name even, isn't it? And yet, makrothumia, I got that one in the Greek. That word is like fortitude and endurance. That's what patience means. A grit. And we, we fly past the fruit of the Spirit as if they're these kind of like ethereal ideas. There are these powerful physical realities about what you should be. And he's imploring you, be this. Yes, you're a Christian because Jesus saved you. You will not make yourself more saved by doing this. But because you're saved, can you see the good in pursuing an understanding of yourself that seeks not to harm others? that holds back your strength from damage and uses your strength to build. Endeavoring 
He says in verse 3, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This right there is why I wanted to go back and look at this. Whatever else I'm going to say about pastors and people in the rest of the text, what Paul wants us to do is keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He wants us not to schism and rift and break the church. Paul implores us, no matter what debates we might have, no matter what frustrations what might come, no matter what things about us are seeking to divide us, pursue unity in the spirit of Jesus Christ and the bond of peace. Now, does that mean be unified at all costs? No, it does not. It means seek a certain kind of unity. That is the one in which there is, verse 4, one body, one spirit, one hope to which you are called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. So the unity that we are to pursue is Jesus. Jesus, Son of the Father, Jesus who baptizes you into himself, Jesus who gave apostles, prophets, and evangelists to write the scriptures so you would know what he thinks, what he says. One tidbit about that section, the one faith, one Lord, and all that. We've only got one way to say one in English. There's no less than three and kind of more in, in Greek. And he uses a bunch of them here. They're all a bunch of different ones. None of them are the same. And the loudest is the Father, by the way. It's all leading toward the Father at the top. In any case, to pursue the unity of the church, to be held together by Jesus, verse 7, to each one of us, grace was given. Again, we can't do this. God has to do this for us. Grace is given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Do you ever sit back and wonder why you're here? Dear God, why am I here? What am I doing? I'm not talking about a church. I mean, you might do that too. But in general, what, what is my purpose? Well, this verse answers it. Grace is given to you according to Christ's measure. Your purpose is to do whatever Jesus gives you to do. Now, you might say, well, that's kind of vague. Well, yes, it is. You're going to have greater hints the closer you get to your body. So are you married? Well, that tells you what you should do quite a bit. Do you have kids? Lots of answers there from the Bible on what you should do. Do you have parents? Same thing. So your body's a lot about what you're supposed to be doing. But again, the idea is that what you're going to do that's right, when it's right, is not because you figured it out. It's because Christ gave you the gift of figuring it out. And to make that happen is what this text is about. To make you figure out how to walk better, Christ gave you apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Verse 11. Now again, in the reading, we skipped over verses 8 to 10. So let's go look at that for a brief moment so we can see we're not hiding anything under the rug. But verses 8 to 10, Paul goes on a tangent about the ascension and the descent into hell. And he walks really fast, and he probably will just confuse us all if we listen to him, but we'll let him do it. Here it goes. Therefore, God says, verse 8, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, this he ascended what does it mean but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles. So you can see that there's the give gave in verse 7 and then verse 11. And this tangent, it's not, I mean tangent, he's glorifying God for what God did. 
that the one who was exalted in the highest heaven came down to earth, went down to the abyss of our own grave, came back out again and went back to the highest heaven. I mean, it's worth stopping and talking about. But that you might know this, he has given you the apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers. Now, I want to zoom in on that because it's really easy. In fact, it's been done officially in our church body over the last 30 and 40 years to try to turn this into some sort of malleable form of mission program or something. And that's not what it's doing. It's trying to tell you where you can find confidence, where you can find certainty. When Jesus ascended, what did he leave behind for you to trust? (laughs) Not your pastor not dropping things, that's for sure. Uh, as the Bible just falling there, what did he leave behind for you to trust? He left behind the Bible. Apostles to write the New Testament, to point to the Old Testament, and to hold it all together with these gospelers, these evangelists, Mark and Luke, who tell the narrative of Jesus by researching all things. And then you got these weird little new words, pastor and teacher. He gave some to be pastors and teachers. First, why? For the next sentence, so that everybody else could be Christians. You don't need a pastor to be like you. You just need a pastor to stand up here and tell you what the Bible says so you can be a Christian. That's God's design. The biggest issue is we don't know that anymore. The word pastor, I don't even know what it means, honestly. I think if I gave you a survey with 10 different possible answers, it'd come back with 10 different possible answers of what a pastor is. It's a very wide word. And then the word teacher is just as bad now. Here, biblically, chapter 4 of Ephesians, it does not mean day school. It does not mean math or science, philosophy, psychology. It means pastor. Just like the word before it says, pastors and teachers. That's what they are. But again, what are we? Now, I think I can answer this for you with a better word. The word pastor is the Latin cognate of the Greek. So, The word in Greek is poimain. It goes into Latin, then comes into English as pastor. So it jumps two languages. But if you skip the Latin move and go straight from Greek to English, you get a different word. Shepherd. Shepherd. Some to be shepherds and teachers. Now, I like that word a lot more because it doesn't have any baggage. Like none, actually. There's so little. But it also has some pretty good hmm, pictures. So if you really want to know what a pastor does, a shepherd does, he does two things. He shouts at you, follow me. And if you don't, and you're about to run off a cliff, he might try to hit you with a stick. Don't do that would be how the pastor would do it, right? Stop! Law and gospel, we can say it that way if you want to. The point is, right, the pastor's task is to see higher than you and shout at you while you live. You live day in, day out with a little bit of the word of God in your life and your pastor goes back and studies it deep so he can pour it out on you every week and you can be filled up with it. And that's again what the rest of the text says, right? Pastors and teachers are to equip you, the saints, for the work of ministry. That just means your life, really. It's, it's the, 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 the coming together of service, the being of one by. The pastor is to equip you for that, to edify you, with the body of Christ, until, here's the same word, until we come to the unity of the faith. Remember that unity of the spirit by the bond of peace? Well, here it is again. That we should come to a unity of the faith, which is the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. The way the ESV sounds there is not as good as the King James, and they're both tough. So the idea is not that the pastor's here to make you grow into a mature person. 
The pastor is here to convince you you are already in the mature man, Jesus Christ. And that his maturity will be unable to be stopped. That it is so powerful that it will go inside of you and change you, come out of you, remake you. When that happens, you will no longer be tossed to and fro like children carried about by every wind of... Now, interesting, it says doctrine here, teaching, teaching, same idea, doctrine and teaching, pastor and shepherd all going together. Come aside from the text for a second. I've been using the word myth a lot in the sermons. I'm going to keep doing it. What I mean when I say myth is a really big story that people believe. So the Marvel movies are a myth. And like I said, you know, the calendar is kind of a myth. I mean, it works, right? Don't throw it away yet, but, but it's not really true in an eternal sense. Why am I doing this? What I want you to start realizing is that everything in the world is stories. Everything you hear, fake news, real news, all stories, 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 stories. People telling stories. You're telling stories. I'm telling stories. Which stories do you trust? And how do you know what to trust? And I would suggest that back before we had the internet, you could kind of let it all come in and pick and choose what you're going to pick on. And you, you had enough time and space to shove away the dirty. But I'm going to suggest you got a fire hose pouring into your face and your mind and your heart right now. And you don't know what to do. It's got you spinning all over the place. You're being pushed about by every wind of teaching. Have you noticed? It's called gaslighting if you want the political term. It's when they say this, this, this really loud, and then they recant it at the bottom of the page three weeks later. They've been doing it for a long time. You just got to watch. Keep some copies. Take some pictures. It's amazing what changes, what they say and then don't say and then say again. And I'm not here to convince you we have to fix that. I'm here to convince you you don't have to believe it. When they lie, you don't have to believe it. You don't have to be pushed about by every wind of doctrine, by trickery from men, by cunning, craftiness, and deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love, we together grow up into all things him, Christ, the head, from whom that whole body, one body, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, that whole body is being knit together. And the language about that knitting is a bit weird. The English doesn't come across good. The Greek is even more difficult. He's like in pains to say that there's like layers upon layers of our growth beyond our comprehension. So it's not unlike when Paul says that God's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Kind of take that feel into this, that the body that we have is the church, which is Christ from heaven in you and me, us together now throughout history, speaking, he is risen. The power and the layers of glory in that we can't even perceive. But we can believe they're there. And it's not the biggest proof. The biggest proof is that he rose. But the fact that we're here this much time later, listening to this man's words, that alone commends itself pretty highly. It's not as though Christianity needs to prove itself true more than that resurrection. But I think as Lutherans, we've been afraid to challenge each other for a while to test the scriptures. I don't think we should be like Gideon, where he doesn't believe and won't go stand on it. But we should take a lesson from Gideon, which is if God shows up as a warrior mighty angel and he hands you the power to go ransack your enemies, don't question the guy. And so if he wrote a book on wisdom and how not to be a fool, 
I'll read a little bit once a day, won't you? If, if you wrote some prayers, some psalms and songs to guarantee that when you pray them, you will know who you are. Well, grab that. Say it out loud. Own it a little bit. Yeah? If you're going to test God, don't test him with things you make up. Test him with what he's promised he will do and see if he doesn't prove true. Yeah, even as we go to the supper right now. In the name of Jesus, amen.